to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I, I think I do, yes. Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist because when I tell someone I'm a feminist, they automatically go that way. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, there's, I know that there's going to be explanation after that. Like, I'm going to have to explain myself. So, so... I feel like this Southern culture, especially in the black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second. And then also I didn't know what feminist meant. I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist. And I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. I do believe feminism is for everybody. Welcome back. You're listening to the Fem South podcast, and I'm your host, Lee. Thank you so much for joining me again. This is our final episode of our four part series on women healers. And I'm so excited to bring to you today a very special guest, Pamela Smith. Pamela is one of the founding members of the farm community in Tennessee that was started in the early 70s. And for those of you that don't know about the farm community in Somerville, Tennessee, it was a self-sustainable community started by Stephen Gaskin and his wife, Ida Mae Gaskin, and a whole group of people wanting to make a difference in the world. And Ida Mae Gaskin is a very important voice in the midwife and home birthing movements in the United States and in the South especially because during this time period in which they were creating this community and, um, and developing their birthing center in Tennessee, uh, this was a time in which midwifery was illegal. Um, natural home births were really hard to come by. And so they were providing these natural births for states such as Alabama, where uh, midwifery was criminalized. And so Ida Mae Gaskin is a really important figure. She's written several books, one of which is the really beautifully written book called Spiritual Midwifery, and she's given tours and talks all over the world. So our special guest today, Pamela, gave birth to her first child at the farm, facilitated by Ida Mae Gaskin. Watching the farm midwives, watching Ida Mae Gaskin, and going through the experience of giving birth to her son was really a life-changing experience for Pamela, which launched her career and her life's work in birth work. Uh, She began her own doula service in-home maternity support for new babies and mothers in Boulder, Colorado, 
She studied psychology and creative writing at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, and she's been a midwife's assistant at the Mayan Women's Healthcare Clinic in Guatemala. These are just a few of Pamela's accomplishments. I mean, right now she's busy working with her partner, Bob Zellner, who who was a part of the civil rights movement in the South. And um, together they founded the Smith Zellner Consulting Firm, where they provide advice and training for youth organizations, youth leadership who are working with racial reconciliation, racial justice, and social justice movements. They're also promoting Bob's book, The Wrong Side of Murder Creek, which has recently been made into a movie, Son of the South, directed by Barry Alexander Brown. So Pamela is very busy, and I'm so excited to have her here. She and Bob are an important part of the Fairhope community, and Pamela's been advocating for natural births for a really long time now, and so I'm excited to talk with her about her experiences. Before I move on, though, with my interview with Pamela, I do want to say that this experience putting together this four-part series on women healers has been so enriching for me. I have learned so much about the importance of women healers, uh, particularly because we've been focusing so much on birth workers. I've learned so much about what the, the service that these women provide in their communities and for people who birth and their families. All the women I've interviewed are really at the forefront of change making. And I know that there's so much work out there being done under the umbrella of women healers. And I just feel so much gratitude for all of you who are out there doing this work, especially because this is a labor of love for many of you. And the work is hard and the pay is very minimal. And so, um, yeah, it's just really important what you're doing. And I just wanted to take a moment to share my gratitude for all of you out there in the world working so hard to heal our humanity. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope you've enjoyed this four-part series. So thank you so much, Pamela, for joining me today to talk about women healers and birth work in the South. Thank you, Lee. I'm excited. It's my favorite topic of conversation. So let's go ahead and just jump right in. So, Pamela, you were a midwife's assistant and doula at the infamous farm, which, for those of you who don't know, is a midwife center in Tennessee. It was started in the 70s as an intentional community by a group of people out of San Francisco that were trying to create a new way of life. Exactly. And you can jump in while I give this brief overview. And, you know, from watching the movie, which I watched the movie about Ina May Gaskin and the farm midwives, which is a really great documentary, it seemed like they had started off in buses and traveling. And as they were traveling around, a lot of the women in the community were giving birth, which kind of then gave birth to this whole um, midwifery movement as a spiritual component to the community, right? And so they settled in this 1,700-acre farm and started this community with Ina May right. and, and other midwives, right? Correct, yes. And, and let me just say that while I was on the farm, I, I wasn't a midwife's assistant or a doula. I was so inspired by um, the midwifery movement on our farm because for me it was life-changing. And for me it was a very strong 
feminist statement to to have a, a natural birth. And I was my life was so dramatically changed by particularly my first birth that the time that I was on the farm, I was uh, a student of natural childbirth and midwifery and following every move of, of the midwives, but I didn't really become an assistant or a doula till after I left the farm. So then how did you get to the farm? What was your journey to getting to the farm? Well, uh, I was attending the University of Missouri in Columbia, and uh, I, I left the university and, and headed out to uh, San Francisco in 1969. And for me, it was a, it was a spiritual quest that I was on. Uh, I got out there and I started hearing about Buddhism, which um, although I was raised in the mil- military and had done a lot of traveling as a young person and traveled in Europe, I'd never been uh, west of the Rockies, and I had never heard about Buddhism. So I was quite fascinated with um, Suzuki Roshi, the Japanese uh, monk who, whose his energy actually permeated the whole city. And I kept hearing a conversation in the sort of spiritual circles I was uh, listening in on about this Monday night class that was happening every Monday night at the Family Dog in San Francisco. The Family Dog is this huge ballroom right on Highway 1 where um, big concerts were held, you know, Jefferson Airplane, uh, Mamas and Papas, you know, all of, all of the big bands would have their, um, their concerts at the Family Dog. And I kept hearing about Stephen Gaskin in Monday night class, and I was very curious about what this was. So uh, one night I went and I arrived late. The family dog had these huge doors. And because I was late, I opened up the big doors and there were 2,000 people sitting in Zazen meditation. Well, if you can imagine, the energy of that just threw me back. And, and I, I said, whoa, what, what is happening here? So I sat down in the back of the room, and after about a 30-minute meditation, the teacher, Stephen Gaskin, um, started to talk uh, about whatever was on what he called the group mind, group consciousness, and then to take questions. And we were questioning the dogma of our culture and questioning uh, religion, questioning uh, politics, questioning relationships, questioning everything, and, and questioning, did we really believe in these things? And looking at religion and looking at mysticism and seeing how the different religions lined up. It was just the most fascinating conversation I had ever heard. So about oh, nine months after I, I started going to Monday night class, Stephen and his family were invited by an ecumenical council to speak at um, universities and churches around the country. And it was back in the day when people would take school buses and turn them into homes. And uh, so Stephen said, well, my family and I were going to do this. And they had one of those, they had one of those double-decker buses that they turned into a, a home. And uh, we all said, well, what about us? And he said, well, get it together and come with me. And uh, so I ran out and I sold my um, Ford Econoline van and bought a school bus and started turning it into a home. 
and um, started this caravan with 60 to 70 school buses and vans that on Columbus Day, 1970, were lined up along Highway 1, ready to take off on this journey around the country. Um, And that's what we did. And while doing that, babies were born on the caravan. Um, We did that for nine months, uh, stopping and having meetings where we would meditate with people and we would talk about what was happening in the country and about the war in Vietnam and about all these tremendous, the civil rights movement, about all of these uh, big changes that were occurring. So we were having all these meetings. Then we got back to San Francisco and we had become a community when we were on the road. But when we got back to San Francisco, it seemed a kind of too fast and too jaded. And we really liked the energy of the heartland of middle America. So we pooled all of our resources and sent out scouts to look for land, and we found land in Tennessee. We found um, initially a 1,000 acres, which we bought, and um, so we turned all our buses around, went back to Tennessee, pulled our buses up on the land, and started building a community. Wow, Pamela, I didn't even realize that you were one of the founders. Yeah. That's so incredible. I just got chills when you said the buses were all lined up, that many buses. Yeah. The documentary doesn't uh, show that scale, Mm -hmm. so I didn't really realize it was that big. Yeah. Wow. So how then did um, the midwifery then begin to develop on the farm? It was natural. Um, Ina Mae was very – Ina Mae is Stephen Gaskin's wife, and she was – very much interested in midwifery even before the caravan. And she lost a child. She lost one of her babies, I think, on the caravan. I need to check my history. But um, when babies started to be born on the caravan, they would always call Ina Mae because she had the most knowledge about natural childbirth. And so then when we got back to Tennessee, when when we finally landed in Tennessee... We were so fortunate because there was this beautiful uh, country doctor, Dr. Williams, and he had been, um, he was the doctor for all of the Mennonite babies, delivering all the home births for the Mennonites. And he happened to be writing a paper at that time about how he believed and, and how his research proved that natural birth done properly was safer than hospital birth. So he was really excited to have this huge group of, of, uh, of people that were interested in a natural childbirth to work with. And so he trained all of our midwives, and he was our, he was our main doctor on the farm. We were really fortunate in uh, having that collaboration with Dr. Williams. That's amazing. And I just wonder, like, what was it like getting all that going, like starting from scratch and building a community like that? And I know that's probably a big question. (laughs) That's a big question. It was quite an adventure. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And it was, you know, so my first child, Nathaniel, he was born in a school bus. Was that during your initial nine months? No, it was after we had landed on the farm. Okay. Yeah, we had landed on the farm. And um, yeah, I mean, we started from scratch and we were... We were a lot of professional people. I personally was not professional, but 
we had doctors and lawyers and and people like that that were you know they had uh, bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and PhDs but they wanted something different than the standard sort of American dream they wanted uh, they wanted a a relationship with the earth. Um, they wanted a spiritual community. They wanted a vegetarian community. We wanted, it was a grand experiment, and we didn't really know what we were doing, but we were willing to attempt it. Um, so, you know, we started from scratch and you know, little by little, you know, built houses, but it took a while, you know, to get, you know, we started by building the laundromats. And I, I think the first building we built, because we needed a cottage industry, was a sorghum mill. We thought we could uh, support ourselves with a sorghum mill because that grows around there. And we built this gorgeous sorghum mill. It was so beautiful. Um, and then we had to, you know, we just had to learn as we went. But it was a grand adventure. And I, I we made a lot of mistakes. Uh, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't trade it for the degree that I didn't get by leaving the university and and joining this community. And how many children? Did you have all five of your children on the farm? No, I had my first three sons on the farm. Oh. And then I had um, uh, a son born in uh, Colorado, and then Alana, my daughter, was born here in Fairhope. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So how long then did you in, live on the farm? For eight years. Eight years. Yes. Wow. Uh, one of those years was in Guatemala with our relief organization, Plenty. Oh, I don't, I'm unfamiliar with that. What is that organization? Well, that was the reason that we came to Fairhope in the 70s. Um, it was very important to the farm to reach out to the community and to be a benefit to the community because we were kind of scary. We didn't want to be. I mean, we that was we worked so hard at explaining who we were and not being threatening to anybody. Because if you can imagine a caravan going around the country with psychedelic buses and uh, long-haired people at, in the 70s, that was very intimidating to people. And so we made a real point of stopping and talking to people and saying, this is what we're about. We're not druggies. You know, we're we're not violent, you know, we're pacifists, this is who we are. So um, when we were in Tennessee, there were tornadoes and, and things like that, natural disasters that were happening in Tennessee and Alabama, and we would do our best to, whenever there was a natural disaster, to go and help. And after a while, we said, hey, we want to go international. We want to do this uh, as far as, you know, be as far-reaching as possible. And so my husband and I and another couple from the farm came down to Fairhope to do research into um, finding a freighter for the international, um, international outreach that we wanted to do. And uh, as a result of that, we started a satellite community in Mobile. And in 76, there was a great earthquake in Guatemala. The, the 76 earthquake was one of the, the biggest earthquakes that they've ever had. And it just so happened at that time, Mobile was a sister city to Guatemala City. And so we, re, we organized a relief effort to um, send relief to Guatemala, but we knew that if we just sent it down there, it would be stolen on the docks. So uh, what we did was we, we had a construction crew in Mobile, 
And we sent uh, the men, my husband included, we sent them down to Guatemala to to take the supplies down and the and the money and so forth that we had organized, and see what we could do to help in Guatemala. And when we got down there, we met with the Canadian government, and the Canadians are wonderful whenever there's a disaster in the Americans because they are uh, Johnny on the spot with money and supplies. And at this particular time, they had the money and the supplies, but they didn't have the the people that would do the work. We were young and idealistic, and we didn't care about making money. We just wanted to the opportunity of working on the project and just have our basic needs met. So we established this relationship with Canada, and then... Uh, I went back to the farm while my husband was in Guatemala because I was pregnant with my third son, Ryan. And um, when Ryan was born, Ryan was born with some problems right away. And I, I knew that he was having problems. And um, I had a feeling at when he was three days old that I was going to lose this baby. And so I called up Dr. Williams and uh, I called up Ina May first and I said, you know, we had, we'd had nurses come over and check Ryan out, and I just had this really strong instinct that he was seriously ill, and nobody could find anything. And so I called up Ina May, and I said, Ina May, I, I just feel like I'm going to lose this baby. And she said, call Dr. Williams. So I called Dr. Williams, and this is in line with your what you're going to talk about, women healers. So Ina May told me to call Dr. Williams. I called Dr. Williams, and I said, Dr. Williams, I just have this really strong instinct that my baby's going to die. And he said, listen, honey, he said, I always trust a mother's intuition. And he said, you take that baby to Vanderbilt, and we're going to have him checked out. And if there's a problem, we're going to take care of it. And if not, you're not going to worry. I'm not going to worry. We're all going to be happy. It'll all be good. So we took Ryan to Vanderbilt, and turned out he had a polycystic kidney, which he had removed at five days old. So we're leaving Vanderbilt Hospital, and Dr. O'Neill, who's the surgeon who operated on Ryan, says to me, so when are, you, when are you going to Guatemala? And I said, I'm not taking this baby to Guatemala. And he said, why not? He has another kidney. You guys have a great medical crew. And then he took out a piece of paper, and he started writing on it, and he handed it to me, and he said, here's a list of my associates in Guatemala. If you ever have a problem, give him a call. So when Ryan was six weeks old, we went to Guatemala with my two other little boys who were three and five, and we lived in a tent for nine months doing relief work in Guatemala. So that was part, that was, uh, that was one of, and then we, we did come back to the farm briefly after Guatemala, and then we left the farm, I think it was in 78, 77 or 78, yeah. So before we talk about why you left and your journey after leaving, I do want to ask you about what it's like to work with Ida Mae because she's the infamous midwife. Um, what was that like? It was life-changing. I mean, she's <laughs> – I get emotional just talking about it because um, my first birth with Nathaniel um, – I learned so much about myself, and uh, I that's why I'm such a passionate advocate for natural childbirth, because 
I think it's a great opportunity for women to learn about themselves and to learn what their strengths are. And I was, at that point, I was very self-conscious. As I have shared with you, I was raised in the military and my father was a colonel. And I was very intimidated by men, especially, you know, men in authority. And I was very self-conscious. And through that birth, I learned about my strengths. I learned how strong I was. And that was thanks to Ina May because um, during that birth, you know, I'd made a commitment to my unborn child that I was going to have this natural birth because I knew it was in his or, or at that time we didn't know what sex our children were going to be. I knew it was in the best interest of this unborn child that I would have a natural birth for the sake of the child's health, our bonding. And so I, I made this commitment. But then as, as the labor started intensifying and the, the pain started coming on, I, I was trying to push the pain away. And what you resist persists. And when you resist something, it increases the pain. And so, and I was also, I was also very intimidated by authority figures, and I idolized Ina May, and I was intimidated by her presence with me at the birth. So at one point, after about 24 hours of this excruciating labor, she said to me, she said, well, I'm going to leave now. And she said, um, you know, if this doesn't progress, uh, we're going to have to take you to the hospital. And I was sort of angry, and I, you know, kind of went, fine, you know, cut this baby out, whatever. And But then I went outside, and I, I looked up in the sky, looked up through the trees, and I just said, no, I made a commitment to this child and to myself that I was going to do this. And I had no clue how I was going to do it. I just It just seemed absolutely impossible. But Ina May, in her wisdom, sent over my best friend, Mary Crum, and Mary was one of these gals. She was a big lady. She had she had big bosoms, and she was round, and she was jolly, and her babies just kind of fell out of her. <laughs> and um, so Ina May sent her over to me, and Mary took off her clothes and got in bed with me. And her memory and my memory of what happened, because they've both been written down, are a little bit different, but... What I remember was she said, Pamela, she said, it's just like surfing. She said, okay. She said, when this contraction comes on, pretend you're on a surfboard and you're going you're gonna to work and you're going to get to the top of this contraction. And then when you hit the crest of the wave, take a deep breath and enjoy the ride down and gather up your strength for the next climb. And so rather than resisting what was happening, I surrendered to what my body was doing, and it became bliss, and Nathaniel was born soon after. I love that uh, analogy to ride the wave like that. Um, that's interesting that you had that um, experience with Ida Mae. I can see how that she could be intimidating, because at that point, she had pretty much become well-known. Right? She was the goddess. I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well... It's one of the things I really thought was beautiful about the documentary is seeing the way in which the women were allowed to 
move around freely, mm-hmm. lie naked if they wanted to. Yeah. No sheets covering them up, you know. Um, people lying around them and holding them in their laps. Yes. That was so beautiful to see. So it sounds like that was something that your friend came in and offered that to you. So beautiful. Um, and that's one of the things I really want to talk about with you is the difference in care between, you know, the midwifery model, the model that the farm was developing, remembering, mm-hmm. maybe as a better word than developing. Right. And, um, and the hospital care. Well, I can give you an example because I had Alana here in Fairhope at Thomas Hospital because I couldn't find a midwife that would do a home birth. So I, they had taken away the licenses from the granny midwives down here in Alabama. The granny midwives were brilliant. They were so knowledgeable. But I couldn't find anyone to assist me. And um, finally, I found Dr. Rowe here in, in uh, Fairhope. And we had sort of a meeting of the minds. I begged him to do a home birth, and he would not do that. And I respected why he wouldn't do that. And I said, well, Dr. Rowe, I've had four babies. I know what I'm doing. Um, I will agree to have this baby in Thomas Hospital if you will just let me do it. Just let me let me navigate it myself. And, you know, I just would like you just to be there in case I need you. And he agreed to do that. So I was really, really fortunate that I was able to do that. However, Later, when I became a doula and a, and a labor facilitator in hospitals in Colorado, I, I saw some pretty different scenarios where there was a lot of intrusion by the, the hospital system and the, and the medical staff that were really uh, made the whole birthing process much more difficult than it, than it needed to be. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of that? Like what what are some of the things that you think are invasive that they do? Well, I'll talk about my goddaughter, um, Bianca. She, her mother and I, her mother's my best friend. And Bianca's first birth, we were in the hospital. And, um, you know, I've had a lot of experience with birth. And Bianca wanted to have a natural birth. But the nurse who was in there was chastising me and Bianca's mother for being her doulas for you know help helping her with the process and and she was telling her to breathe at the wrong times. I mean she was coaching her improperly. It was just some sort of um, social position or something. you know her, her being a nurse, she thought she knew what to do, but it was purely mechanical and she was not she was not intuitive with Bianca's contractions. She was telling her to, to breathe at the wrong time, and it, and it became absolute torture to Bianca. So for Bianca's next birth, when she had the baby in the hospital, she was adamant, and she said, nobody's going to tell me what to do. This is my body. This is my birth, and I, I know what I'm going to do, and that's what's going to happen. And so women, you know, women need to, to empower themselves that way. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why, you know, doulas are so important because I think that so many women, I I speak for myself, um, don't know what their options are. And then when they face these authority figures in in the birthing process, can feel definitely disempowered to speak up 
about their needs and about their wants. And um, so that's when the doula can come in and, and do that. But it's interesting that the nurse was fighting against the doula and had a perceived superiority over the doula in oh, that yeah. capacity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's really the story of how midwifery, it's a very long and complicated story, but the story of how midwifery gets um, criminalized. Yes. And we can talk about that. It's one of my talking points, um, which is, you know, this idea that birthing is, natural birthing is a way to empower women. Yes. Like you said. Yes. Which, of course, it is. But when you think about it, I mean, how did we get to the point where natural birthing is a revolutionary It is a revolutionary idea. act. I know. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy because we've yeah. been birthing babies since humanity began. Exactly. And we've been the primary um, gatekeepers of this process up until a certain point. Well, we're talking about male, you know, white supremacy, you know, and we, the, the dominant males have been threatened by the intuitive power of women. And, and they want to suppress that. Um, I'm one of my favorite books of all time is called Mother Wit. Have you ever seen it? You, I'll have to bring you a copy of it. And it's written by the granny midwives. It was, well, it wasn't written by them. Uh, the, the woman who wrote it interviewed the granny midwives. And it's just a brilliant, brilliant book. Well, I'm just learning a little bit about the history of midwifery in Alabama. Um, and I do know that it's only recently been legalized right. in um well, I think 2017, I mm-hmm. could be wrong. That might not be 100% accurate, but it's it's only been in the last decade that it has been legalized. And before that, a woman could be arrested. And, and probably in the case of you trying to have a baby here in Fairhope, right. the reason why you were turned down was because that doctor could have gotten yes, he, yeah, he arrested would, for the home yeah, birth. Yeah, he would have right? gotten in trouble, yeah. Or had his license removed or exactly. something like that. exactly. And, and it was even mentioned in the documentary about the farm that many women from Alabama would go to the farm to have babies because it was illegal in Alabama. Right. Did you experience that when you were there, women coming from oh, these Oh, absolutely. Of one of the things, one of the revolutionary things that the, that the farm midwives did, which I'm so proud of, it was when the whole abortion debate was made public and when we were for the first time, like really openly talking about it in public. And we believed that it was a woman's right to decide what to do with her body. And we also felt like that women needed a di- another option. So Ina Mae got on the airwaves, you know, that was on the radio back then. And um, she said, listen, she said, if you are, if you're pregnant and you're thinking about having an abortion, but you're not sure come to the farm and uh, we will we will give we will do your prenatal care for free. We will deliver your baby for free. We will do your postpartum care. We'll give you a place to stay. And if you decide after you have this baby that you don't want the baby, somebody on the farm who's not able to have a baby or who would like to take care of your child will adopt your child. But if you ever want that child back, you can have that child back. Now that's revolutionary, wow. and and it gives people a, an option. And also, once a woman sees her baby, it's very hard to 
let them go unless she has maybe she has some mental challenges or physical challenges or something like that and it was very very rare that anybody would actually give up their baby and so i just thought that was so brilliant to to give women another option because that was the problem women didn't have options so after you left the farm then you said that you went to Colorado and started um, your own journey into being a doula? Yes. Yes, I did. People were coming to me because they knew about my farm background. And um, Colorado's, you know, supposedly a very liberal place. Well, Boulder is anyway. So people knew about my farm journey and they, women would ask me questions about raising babies and about natural childbirth and, you know, nursing babies and all this. And my marriage had uh, had ceased, had, had broken up, and I had uh, five children to raise. And I was, it was very unsatisfying for me to, um, you know, work in offices or whatever. And my passion was as, as an advocate for natural childbirth. And so I established one of the first uh, doula services in, in uh, Colorado called We Care, W-E-E, We Care, to uh, provide labor facilitation for women, whether they wanted a home birth or they wanted uh, labor facilitation in a hospital, and then to provide uh, postpartum care for them when they came home so that we would help them uh, learn how to take care of themselves, how to take care of the baby, um, and also provide, you know, a nice meal for them and their family. So to me, that was so satisfying to be able to, um, to support women in that way. So that's what I did. Well, that sounds like an incredible thing to do. And how long did you do that? About, it was during the 90s, about almost, not quite 10 years, about eight years I did that. Okay. Yeah. So as you're raising your babies, you're doing this other wonderful thing for other mothers. How did it affect the way that you were raising your own children? They loved it. Um, Alana, she was my only, she's my only girl, and I often had to take her with me when I was taking care of new mamas and babies, and that's been, had a tremendous impact on, on her life. She's... Um, She's a paramedic in New Zealand, and uh, she just is so excited every time she has a birth. She calls me up, and she's like, Mama, I'm thinking about you. And just recently, she had a situation, and she called me up. She said, Mom, how would you have handled this? And um, she loves the fact that she was able to be a part of that. And my boys are, are you know, very proud of me as a mama. Um, they had to, you know, learn how to help support the family. Um, so, you know, they say that, um, you know, that diamonds are, are formed under extreme pressure. And I think that when you're in situations where you don't have a lot of resources, it can sometimes be a, a, a wonderful thing because you learn to dig deep and, and uh, find the, the treasures within yourself. That's beautiful. Can I say something else? Oh, please. I think that, as we mentioned before, that um, natural childbirth, uh, as, as odd as it seems, has now become a revolutionary act. And I just so wish that more young women would 
learn about uh, natural childbirth and and want to take that journey because um, in in a lot of ways, like if you choose, I think sometimes we're we're afraid of pain, which is understandable. Of course, we're afraid of pain, but why would we let the patriarchy cut us open and rip us off of our power when we could hold on to that power and and become better, stronger human beings? The thing that I got from my natural birth with Nathaniel that has served me my whole life was when I did that, I thought, I can do anything. And nature, I believe, designs it that way that women have to go through this trial because you're going to need it to raise these kids. You know, you're going to need a lot of energy, a lot of stamina, a lot of endurance for a long time to raise these children. And this passage, this great passage that we have the opportunity and the blessing to go through gives us the strength to be great women and, 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 and parents and mothers. I agree with you so much on that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have a natural childbirth, so I feel, and I feel really unfortunate, honestly. Um, but I do know what you're saying about needing to have all of that energy and that sense of empowerment. And it really wasn't until I became a mother that I felt that kind of sense of empowerment and that I can do anything. And it always came in the most, um, I don't know, seemingly trivial moments where I was doing something that somebody probably wouldn't think twice about, you know, with with two kids. And I've, I've written about this, actually, like being on a plane traveling to Germany on a 12 hour flight with two small children. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like to me, that felt like oh, yeah. I had done something huge. Yes. And had. I couldn't really talk about it because it's just it's not something that our culture would deem as being like this great thing that somebody's done, you know, like running a marathon, for example, but I felt like I had done something huge. And that gave me a lot of strength and determination. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of moments, I I imagine, I I couldn't even imagine like how much stronger that would have been had I had 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 a natural childbirth. Mm. But I don't want you to feel bad about the fact because you you didn't have the support, I'm sure. That's one of the reasons why I didn't have it. When I, I was young, I hadn't been around anybody that had had a natural childbirth. I wasn't in a culture where that was right. um, in, reinforced. or um, and, and I was in a military hospital, so my options were very limited. Right. I couldn't have had a home birth. And I was afraid. I was afraid of the pain, like you said. And I think that that fear was constantly reinforced. Of course. You know, you're going to be afraid. You're going to need these medications. Mm -hmm. And the moment I felt that pain, I remember thinking, I need to get that epidural soon. Yeah. (laughs) Fast, because I'm so afraid of this being worse. But even if I would have had a natural childbirth in that hospital situation, uh, my partner was not equipped to help me with that. I was not surrounded by warm, loving people rubbing my shoulders and holding me. Right. I would have been in a hospital bed with a little EKG monitor hooked up next to me and it, under fluorescent lights in a cold, sterile environment. And that's the power of women healers. You know, I mean, that's why we need women healers, because the women understand that pain and the women could have supported you. I mean, We need more women to support women that are going through these different changes in their life. 
And and women have not been supported in that role. They've been denied that on purpose in a lot of ways because it's threatening. Yeah. So that makes me want to go into a discussion about your work with your husband now, Bob mm-hmm. Zeldner, mm-hmm. Um, and civil rights and your activism with your husband now. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Bob Zeldner just had a movie made about him, which is based on the book that he wrote. Um, the movie is called Son of the South, and the executive producer of this movie is Spike Lee. And it was written and produced by Barry Alexander Brown, who is also a Southern. An Alabama boy. An Alabama boy, yeah. And so that movie just came out this weekend, actually. You guys just got to go to the premiere. And it's based on his book, The Wrong Side of Murder Creek, A White Southerner in the Freedom Movement. And so I know that your journey with Bob has been a lot about civil rights. Yes. Because he was very much involved in the civil rights movement movements in Alabama. So I guess my question about that is, how do you see your your journey and your work in midwifery in 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 birthing as connected to your work in civil rights? Well, they're they're both uh, revolutionary movements. Bob and I've both kind of been on the fringe. We've taken paths that um, have not been popular with a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I see, we both see that our lives are similar in, in, a, in a lot of ways because we've taken paths that, that aren't popular and have taken risks and have given up a lot materially in order to, uh, in order to do that. And I met Bob because uh, I, was in, I was in Boulder and uh, Peter Yarrow of uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary had come to Boulder, and I was listening to an interview with him on the radio, and he was talking about, uh, it was during the time of uh, Standing Rock, and I was very much involved with the the uh, Standing Rock uh, situation of the Native people, and uh, Peter Yarrow was traveling with young Native youth who were, they were putting on these concerts called Black Hills Unity Concerts, which were uh, designed to bring together the native population, but to um, to teach people about the plight of native youth in particular. And so uh, Peter came to our town with these young people, and they they did a uh, a fundraiser for the Black Hills Unity concert, which I went to, and I was so moved by these young people uh, and their message of what what they had lived through as young people that I just I knew that I that I had to go to the Black Hills and I had wanted to go in support of Standing Rock and this was my opportunity. So I invited my girlfriend who's a, an activist and she said, "Oh yeah, I'll go with you." And then a couple of weeks later when I called her back and and we started making plans, she said, "Well, I've invited um two other of our friends, and uh, and I've volunteered us to do a performance piece. And I'm not an actor. <laughs> and uh, and I said, oh, okay, all right. And this performance piece was written by a Quaker woman, and I have really strong affinity with the Quaker community, especially here in Fairhope. And this, uh, her name is Paula Palmer, and she was researching the history of the Quakers in relationship with what their relationship was with Native people. 
and she had written this piece called Toward Right Relations with Native People. And uh, so we all went out to South Dakota to be a part of this unity concert in solidarity with uh, Standing Rock. And uh, Bob came from the East Coast with um, his friend, Byron Buck, who was going to be the director of this piece. And so we, we met through our civil rights work, essentially. Um, that's how we met. And then, then, he, then I started talking about my my Quaker friends in Fairhope, and he said, oh, Fairhope, I'm from Daphne. And so one thing led to the other. And were you doing your doula work at the time when you met? That point, actually, at that point, I had, I had transitioned from, from birth to death because um, uh, I lost Nathaniel, my eldest son, in 2016. I mean, in, no, excuse me, in 2003. And after I lost Nathaniel, people started coming to me and asking me to be with them when they died. And so I transitioned from birth to death. And um, I, so I was doing end-of-life care at that point. What is that experience like? What's, can you talk about the comparison between birth and death? That has to be very fascinating. Well, they're both, they're both tremendous um, transitions with great opportunities for an enlightened experience. We have so much to learn in our culture about death. We just just like with birth, we we tend to avoid the whole subject and we don't handle it well at all. And there's there's such a tremendous opportunity in death. Right now I'm reading this book called Death and it's written from the uh, the point of view of uh, of an Indian guru, and in India they have a you know, fifteen thousand years of a tradition where they of a spiritual tradition, and they really understand death and and how to how to deal with it. And I'm just I would just like us to become more enlightened with death because when I had to go through Nathaniel's death. I learned in a very painful way how um, how ignorant we were of the process of death and how calloused we are in handling death. And that's what started me. So Nathaniel's birth and Nathaniel's death have been two of the most profound experiences of my life, really. I'm so sorry to hear that you lost Nathaniel. Yeah. How old was he when you lost him? He was 31. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's my greatest teacher. I'm sorry, I'm getting try not to get That's a, no, eyes. no, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, these emotions are important. Yeah. I mean, wow, you've had such an incredible journey. And are you still doing death work right now? Is that kind of where you are? No, I'm doing civil rights work with Bob. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're you're accompanying Bob with his I'm book his, and I'm his, all of I'm that. I'm his COO. Oh, so what I does handle that mean? I well, so I handle all the logistics and you know, all the just all the organization of Bob Zellner. But it's but it's interesting because I feel like I've it seems when I think about that we've only been together about five years it seems like so much longer than that because we've done so much you know we've done until COVID we were traveling 
all year, pretty much, you know, doing lectures and civil rights tours and all. It's been a great, great adventure. When you're doing those lectures, do you get to talk about your experience as a doula and yes, being on I the do. farm? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. Our focus right now is youth groups, and we're working with groups, um, two, two, three groups, especially in Seattle, uh, Shirts Across America, which is a high school leadership group, Action Academy, which is a college leadership group, and um, Common Power, who's, uh, uh, it's a multiracial political action uh, youth-run organization. And so our focus as elders is that we, we want to empower the youth and, and teach young people how to be grassroots organizers. So that's, that's what our focus is right now. Wow, you guys do do so much. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> You're so active. Um, so what do you think then is it going to take here in Alabama to turn around the um, the culture that would support women's rights and women's birthing rights, especially with all this discussion about Alabama having the highest infant mortality yes, rates, yes. And especially among women of color. Yes, yes. Well, I was really excited to see that there are some some OBGYNs that are using midwives more. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what it's going to take, um, but just having these discussions that you and I are having right now is is part of what it's going to take. You know, more open discussions, and I mean, just across the board, whether it's about empowering women or civil rights or whatever it is, we have to learn to talk to each other. We have to learn to have uncomfortable conversations. We have to learn to listen. Like right now. Everybody is so reactionary, you know, everybody's like so attached to their point of view. And we have to be willing to sit down and listen and and try to understand where other people are coming from. And instead of being, you know, so polarized and threatened by each other, I mean, I think that's what it's going to take is the willingness to have uncomfortable conversations and the willingness to have compassion and understanding for where people are coming from. That's the only place I know to start. Yeah, and it seems like it's really challenging to reach out to some of these more rural communities because of yeah. the political polarization. And these are the communities that probably could benefit from and need the most help, especially in terms of what we're talking about with women healers. Exactly. And, um, and maybe even have a lot of people already doing this within their own communities that aren't getting their voices out there. That's right. That's right. So the more we talk to each other and network with each other around the state, you know, the people that um, there's a couple, I'll have to get these articles for you. There's a, a doctor and an herbalist in uh, somewhere in rural Alabama. They're doing great work with their local community. And if we can start networking with these people and supporting each other in our grassroots organizing, I, I think that's a good place to start. I agree. Just what you're doing. What you're doing is exactly is perfect. And thank you for thank you for doing it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for saying that. Um, it feels like it's really tough 
to have these conversations, you know, on the other side of the microphone out in the public. It is. It's kind of scary. Yeah. Because we're all too reactionary at the moment. Um, We have to calm down a bit, you know. Um, I'm just finishing reading the, I think it's the most important sociological and historical book that I've read in my entire life. And it's called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And it explains everything to me about why we are in the state that we're in right now. It, and it explains the religious piece. It explains all of it. So I'll have to read that. I've seen that book. It's and I amazing. I to get it, it. It, and every chapter is a revelation. And I'm like, oh, now it all makes sense. It all makes sense now. All, the, all of it, because we've all been scratching our head, you know, how did we get here? When you read this book, you will understand how we got here. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. And um, I know that you have probably so much more to share uh, because you've had such an incredible life and you're still on this amazing journey with Bob and all the work that you guys are doing together. So if anybody wants to find out about what you are doing, do you have any um, places where they can go an email a website or anything like that? Sure. Um, we have, Bob and I have a website that's uh, called uh, smithzellner.consulting. So www.smithzellner.consulting. And then you can also, uh, you can email me there or Bob there. That's probably the, that's probably the best place to go at this point right now. And that's for your organization that's helping with grassroots organizing. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. And then again, the title of Bob's book, the Wrong Side of Murder Creek, A White Southerner in the Freedom Movement. And the movie that just was released on Friday is called Son of the South. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Pam. Thank you. The Film South is a podcast and book club community produced in the Deep South. We are dedicated to educating, supporting, and empowering women through feminist theory and community. We are intersectional, we are inclusive, and we believe there is no one way to be a feminist. Feminism is an ongoing journey of self-discovery and activism. Our book club is an ongoing exchange between theory and embodiment, and we are simply here to hold space for this collective journey. If you want to get involved with FemSouth, you can go to our website at femsouth.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you would like to be a part of our book club, you can ask to join our private Facebook book club group where we read and discuss books online. You can also follow us on Instagram and listen to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play. We'd really appreciate it if you would give us some feedback and a rating so that we can know what you, dear listeners, are thinking. If you feel motivated to support us, you can head over to our Patreon account, Patreon slash FemSouth, where you can select your monetary gift. So until next time, you've been listening to FemSouth. South.